Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Ray Benson of Asleep at the Wheel. The 30-time Grammy nominee and nine-time winner is a Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Famer who has released more than 30 albums and landed more than 20 songs on the country singles chart. He'll join us in a few moments to talk about his wide-ranging career as a preservationist and promoter of American roots music traditions. Part one. Well, Paul, we're kind of digging into the archives a little bit today. We are. Um, you know, we do a lot of uh, interviews here at Songcraft. We only have the opportunity to uh, post one every two weeks. Yeah. Not that we wouldn't love to do more, but we just don't have the staff for that kind of thing. Yet. Not not yet. Yet. But uh, one day, I think one day we'll have an entire uh, high-rise building probably. Um, but for now. From your lips to God's ears. Exactly. Um, so this is an interview that we actually conducted, um, last year yeah. and uh, it's a conversation with Ray Benson, uh, of asleep at the wheel also has done some cool solo albums. And, um, this was our, our opportunity to, to pull this one out. This is one that we hadn't had a chance to, to post until now. Um, so it's kind of fun to go back and listen to it. Um, he actually had COVID, which we talk about. He was one of the first artists uh, to get COVID. So yeah, it was we, kind of a surprise we talked about it. It was like, you've had it? Yeah, yeah. Like, at the time, we didn't really know many people who had had yeah. COVID. Um, he talks about Tom T. Hall a little bit. Tom T. was still living at the time. So there's a few little clues in the uh, in the interview that this is um, this is one from the vaults. Uh, but I think it's a great interview. Right. Um, you also uh, having a little bit of trouble with your voice <laughs> that particular <laughs> That's day. That's a nice way of saying it. It sounds like somebody's standing on my throat. I yeah, think. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I've... I've if you've listened to the show for a while, you, you've heard my voice kind of come and go. I've had problems with it from time to time, and that was not one of my better days. But uh, thankfully, I'm feeling pretty smooth today, man. Yeah, you're sounding good today. Yeah. Intro is going to sound great. But the, the intro is great. Then when people hear the actual interview, they're going to be alarmed. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Paul is fine, <laughs> everyone. Fine. He's good. He is, yeah. uh, he, he is healthy. I, I can vouch. Um, but we were actually having a conversation this morning that uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, Asleep at the Wheel. Um, we actually... Uh, were talking about greatest hits albums yeah. this morning and the concept of greatest hits albums. And I think Paul, you could probably articulate uh, the conversation better, better than I can of, of what we were uh, addressing. Yeah. Well, it, you know, when I first started getting into buying, you know, music of my own, starting with cassettes and then eventually going to CDs, a lot of it sort of started with greatest hits albums. You'd heard of these acts and you'd be like, I feel like I should know what Creedence Clearwater Revival is about. So I'm going to buy this greatest hits album. And then the older I got, the more I thought, you know, no, I want the albums. I want these specific works of art. You know, I want to know how the you know chronology went and all that. But for a time, Greatest Hits was kind of all it was. And then I started looking at it like, oh, I'm a poser oh, if I yeah. buy the Greatest Hits album. You, you know, got to have I, more than the Greatest Hits. Exactly. I, sh- I should have Pet Sounds. Right. And not just, you know, the, a Beach Boys compilation. Right, which will only have good vibrations. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, but what's funny about it is you look at I, not all Greatest Hits albums are created equal. Would Agreed. you agree to that? Yeah. There are times 
when I look through a greatest hits album and I'd be like, four hits, <laughs> right. seven other songs. Yeah, well, and, and in some cases, there's greatest hits albums uh, by artists who don't have enough hits to fill an album, depending on how you define hit. Well, that's the big thing, because I think a hit is generally a radio hit, as as we know it. Yeah, yeah that's going to change. Streaming numbers are probably going to play into it somehow. But as far as, you know, our era coming up, a radio single that charted really, really well is what ends up being a hit. Well, you take a look at a band like, for me, a, a formative band for me was Pearl Jam. Right. Now, Pearl Jam, the early part of their career had several hits that were big on the radio. You look at Alive, Even Flow, Jeremy, uh, Better Man. You know, that's the first kind of like five years of the band. Yeah. After that point, you have fan favorites. Agree. Yep. There are a lot of fan favorites on the Pearl Jam rearview mirror greatest hits. Sure. I'd probably call that a best of. Yeah. Rather than a greatest hits. Or a collection. A collection. Yeah. Yeah. The collection. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And and I think that... Um, there are certain artists though, for me, uh, where the greatest hits was enough. And it's not, it's not that I, um, dislike the artist. Um, now I'll, I'll choose one that, you know, an exception to that, that's an artist that you're a big fan of Elton John's greatest hits to me is inadequate. It's a scratch of the surface Yeah. and you got to listen to tumbleweed connection. You got to listen to honky chateau. You got to listen to captain fantastic. I mean, there's so many right. great albums. You're not going to understand Elton John by listening to, um, you know, just the greatest hits. Uh, but for me, like, I'll be honest in saying that, like, I used to wear out the Steve Miller band greatest hits. Oh, for sure. And, and it, it didn't drive me any further. I, I felt it was enough. That's what I needed. You know, that is a Steve Miller album. Yeah. In my opinion, yeah. the greatest hits is maybe the Steve Miller album. That's a, right. Ah, I shouldn't say that. I know a lot of people are probably passionate about the Joker, you know, and, and you can you can send me emails and tell me that I'm lame, but tell me somebody has more Steve Miller albums than The Greatest Hits. Everybody has The Greatest Hits. Well, and every now and then you run into those uh, people that are like, well, I actually like Steve Miller stuff from before all the hits stuff yeah, well, like exactly. when he was a blues band, yeah. you know, it, which tend to be the same people. That like Fleetwood Mac before Lindsay and yeah, Stevie joined the yeah. band. Yeah. Or, or the people that like, you like Steely Dan and you're like, yeah, Deacon Blues is cool. Ricky you know, Don't Lose That Number is good stuff. And then they're like, oh, those songs are terrible. You don't even know anything about it. That's all you know. <laughs> See, but I also remember getting caught, you know, as a purchaser of Greatest Hits albums as a kid. And you'd buy a Greatest Hits album. And no one told you that there were a couple of re-records on right. the album. Right. But they, they went back in and did some schlocky version of it. Or like, you know, Foreigner Records. That's the name of the 400 Greatest Hits album. And I, I don't know how many people bought the 400 Greatest Hits album. I may be in an island here. But... Hot blooded was live. Gross. On the, <laughs> well, okay, you know, so you didn't buy the record. But why a live version? I'm assuming there's some like record label tomfoolery at that point. Some, you know, some songs that were under contract to one label or one even one management deal. I mean, you, you never know what's going on in some band's history. But to just kind of ram some weird live version of Hot Blooded on there, I thought it was a real disappointment. You yeah. Know? Not and that's cool. not the hit. Yeah, that's not the, the live version. version is not the hit. Exactly. It's not the hit. I didn't ever buy that album because I heard it enough in your Dotson uh, <laughs> when we were in high school. I, there's there's no stone unturned on that album that I need yeah. to examine further. I've got a pretty good handle <laughs> on it. You had actual double vision. And, uh, yeah, so many and times. I, I did not dive deeper into Foreigner's catalog uh, <laughs> after that. Uh, but, you know, the the biggest selling album of all time is the Greatest Hits record. 
which is the Eagles' greatest hits. Yeah, which is staggering. And we've talked about this before. It's not even my favorite era of the Eagles. Like, I like Greatest Hits Volume 2 of the Eagles better than Volume 1. Yeah, and that's Volume where we one's part the ways. one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one that sold all the records. And it's, I think, 38 million records was the tally that I. That's insane. But what's, what's weird is to think that enough people didn't already have all the Eagles albums at that point that they needed to buy the greatest hits. There there were still 38 million people that didn't have the albums of this insanely popular band. Yeah. And I think they'd only done like four records at the time that the, (laughs) that the greatest hits represents. So that's incredible. You know, it wasn't like they had a insanely deep catalog that someone would never be able to possibly wrap their brain around. Um, you know, I, I think another, like, I think the Billy Joel greatest hits volume one and two, I feel like everybody kind of has that. That's a staple. Uh, the, um, which is, and frankly is enough for me, which I know that a lot of people would be appalled yeah, by it's that. enough for me too it's, it's enough it's enough uh but uh, or the bob marley legend i mean that's that's, that's another one that like you got that yeah uh that's and enough, it's great it's, it's awesome, amazing but it's but it's enough fantastic yeah i never went and bought more bob marley stuff uh but then there's other artists like al green where i started like the greatest hits was a gateway drug and i went and bought like half a dozen of the actual albums because i'm like right. I, I gotta have more of this didn't you have actual albums that an artist put out that kind of is the greatest hits album. I, I would say Jagged Little Pill from Atlantis Morissette is kind of a greatest hits album. Oh, for sure. Uh, there were songs like Uninvited that came afterwards that, that were hits and great songs. But if you want to know the totality of an artist's really, really important work, you can kind of go to Appetite for Destruction for Guns N' Roses. And right. that might be the greatest hits record. And I think if you were to buy a Hootie and the Blowfish greatest hits record <laughs> or Cracked Rear View, which was the huge album. Don't forget Fairweather Johnson that came right after Cracked Rear View. <laughs> Very important sophomore record. Yeah. Hootie and the Blowfish greatest hits <laughs> or Cracked Rear View. What is the difference? <laughs> I mean, you're going to Cracked Rear View comes in your like yard sale starter kit. If you go to a yard sale and they have CDs for sale, <laughs> Cracked Rear View is in there. There's one Tracy Chapman in there. I and mean, they got Sarah McLachlan surfacing, but there's no disc in there. It's just... <laughs> It's just the jewel case. <laughs> and, and don't ask them about it because they don't know. It's, uh... Totally. Their daughter left it. <laughs> well, one thing that we talk about here on Songcraft uh, occasionally, if you want to have a greatest hits album one day, you got to start by writing a hit first. That's, that's true. That's step one. Once you've written that hit, you got to record it. Maybe you're not a Pro Tools whiz, you know, like we are well okay like you are <laughs> sure. uh, maybe you don't really know the pro tools world maybe but i you bet don't your really... voice is better than mine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well you have your days yeah um but if if you want a great quality recording of a song that you've written you've heard us talk many times about our friends over at pearl snap studios uh, justin and his team do a great job doesn't matter if you write country music christian music rock music hip-hop whatever you write Justin and the folks over there can help you realize that into a proper sounding demo. Yeah, and because we live in the era of streaming, you don't even have to have a greatest hits album. You can just have a greatest hit. People are taking one song at a time. So write that one great song, get in touch with Justin and send it over and find out how good it can sound. That's the thing. You, you've written the great song. Now you need to find out how great it can sound. And Justin and the team at Pearl Snap are the ones to get you there. Go to PearlSnapStudios.com. Let them know that Songcraft sent you and you'll get a discount on your first demo with them. They're really good people and we wouldn't talk about them if we didn't believe in them. So go and check it out. Maybe today is the day that you finally decide it's time to record that demo. Part two. As the co-founder and only consistent member of the group Asleep at the Wheel, Ray Benson has carried the torch for Western swing and other formative musical traditions that helped shape the country genre. The band has released over 30 albums and landed more than 20 songs on Billboard's country singles chart. 
Additionally, Benson has released two solo albums and a duet album with fellow Texas legend Dale Watson. As a producer, he has worked with Willie Nelson, Aaron Neville, Brad Paisley, Vince Gill, Merle Haggard, and others. Ray has earned 30 Grammy nominations, winning nine of them over the course of four decades. He was inducted into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame, is in the Austin Music Hall of Fame, received the Texas Music Association Lifetime Achievement Award, and earned the Americana Lifetime Achievement Award for performance. In short, this long, tall Texan is a living legend. Ray, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, Scott. It has been uh, a, an interesting year, to say the least, for us at Songcraft. All of our, our in-person interviews have stopped, of course, as a result of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of these remote conversations with artists who are stuck at home and, you know, not able to be out there touring, not on the road. Uh, but I don't think we've had anyone on the show who actually contracted coronavirus. And I understand that you were diagnosed early on, which must have been pretty frightening. Um, uh, have you experienced any lasting effects from that, or are you you 100% in the clear at this point? Well, yeah, I was an early adopter. I don't know. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, um, I was uh, fortunate. I mean, I was sick, uh, but I was never uh, in peril. So yeah. um, it was more that it was very confusing because mm-hmm. it was March the nineteenth, uh, and I uh, and of course I couldn't get tested. You know, they didn't right. have they didn't have tests, so that made it really confusing. Because I go to the doctor and they don't have a test, and they say, "Well, you don't have the flu, but uh, we don't know what it is. Come back <laughs> in, oh, in five days, and I go back and spread it around. I'm pretty sure, you know, right? Because uh, uh, nobody, you know. Anyway, so this uh, yeah, yeah the, the good news was. Um, that uh, after I, uh, uh, <laughs> the good news was I lost 35 pounds. I was so sick, but I needed wow. to lose. I needed, to, I'm very big. I'm, you know, I weighed 285, so I needed to, to lose weight anyway. <laughs> I've been able right. to keep keep it off, but that's not the way you really want to go. So uh, no, not, no. not the best <laughs> diet plan, no. Um, well, we are, uh, we're, we're glad that you are uh, bounced back well, thanks, and, and yeah. doing well. Um, as the, band leader of Asleep at the Wheel, you've become synonymous with Texas and, and the Western Swing tradition. Um, but I understand that you were actually raised in uh, Philadelphia. Tell us a, a bit about the music that was catching your ear and inspiring you when you were a young kid coming up in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, we were in the suburbs, you know, never lived actually in Philly, but it's close enough. Um yeah, I'll tell you what, uh, I was a child performer for one thing. Um, mm-hmm. I had a band called, we were folk singing in 1960, 61, 62. My sister, me, and some neighbors had a group called the Four G's. We sang Woody Guthrie, uh, Peter, Paul, Mary. You know, the folk boom was huge, you know. Yeah. Uh, but musically, it was radio. I mean, in 1950s and early 60s, especially in the Philadelphia area, between the FM and the AM, it was just rich with music. Uh, and I would lay there with the radio at night and tune in far off places. And and even during the time, the top 40 radio was as diverse as ever. That's where I heard my first uh, Nashville country music. 
Um, hmm. And of course, uh, my first record, Fats Domino. Uh, so it was pretty cool uh, having, uh, uh, there was a great jazz station called WHAT and got to hear great set jazz. There was great soul music. Oh my God, you know, the there was a trio of, of disc jockeys on the AM that did that fast talking, you know, Foxy Mommy, Daddy Laddy, and Baby Lady, make it on down to the Arcadia <laughs> Ballroom, talk to Broadway, you know, you know and I'm sure they were all taking speed, but um, <laughs> so anyway, it was wonderful uh, music. I mean, literally from A to Z, from, from mm. and then I played in square dance bands on guitar, got, fell in love with fiddle music, played in big bands, uh, upright bass, and I played tuba in the marching band, I, and so music was all around, and um, uh, I and and to boot from the fourth grade fourth grade on when I uh, learned how to rhyme I wrote poetry so uh, <laughs> it, wow. it it seemed to be uh, destined <laughs> <laughs> right that's a that's a pretty diverse uh, musical palette that you're describing there uh, and and your writing uh, you know it kind of shows that you've written all different styles but you're really kind of best known for almost single-handedly keeping uh, the Western swing genre alive. So for some of our listeners who might not be aware, tell us a little bit about that Western swing tradition and how you ended up being drawn to that music. Yeah, well, Western swing is a form of music that uh, was pretty much started in the 20s and 30s in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, uh, you know, Midwest, and migrated to California. Uh, and, and it was fiddle and string based. Uh, that is fiddles, guitars, steel guitars, not pedal steel, but steel guitars. Later pedal steels, right? Um, and 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 horns and and uh, uh, whatever. And it started out as fiddle based music, you know. And as as they got to playing dances and everything, they added drums and and electric guitars, and and the rhythm was for the dancers, you know. Because swing music was the music of the day, and the dance steps, uh, 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 they wanted to do those kind of dances. As you know, there were the early ones were the waltzes, and the, and then there was buck dancing to fiddle tunes. But you know, they wanted to dance to what you know the Glenn Miller band or, or the Dorsey band was doing. So the fiddlers and they say, well, we can play that, you know, and that became what uh, uh, and the blues of New Orleans and jazz of New Orleans, you know. Uh, became the the palette that they use and so and so that was how it started and mm-hmm. so the the songs that they did were they'd start with basic uh, uh the songs that were uh the country western songs and then they added the tin pan alley tunes uh, uh to them and the blues and you know St. Louis blues um uh, uh the, the the you know the really um early pop music and jazz inflected music of the 20s and so and and then and here's where it gets complicated and kind of indicative of american popular music by 19 a fella from england one time said i really like bob wills and the Texas playboys until 1940 because before that, he was imitating um, black musicians. He was imitating um, and 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 doing all these great uh, uh, and minstrel band too, which is black music done by white people. But and he right. took all that. And by 1939, 40, uh, he had 
turned around and it was kind of more Western music. And I asked him why, and uh, some of the guys in the band, and they said, well, uh, they gave Bob the Tulsa Rodeo and Hollywood came calling to do movies. So all of a sudden, you know, going, oh, well, okay, uh, I guess that's what I am. I'm a cowboy singing star. And and, uh, so that's how the music evolved. And then in terms of songwriting, they began to write their own uh, songs, which were a cross between the popular songs of the day and country western songs of the day. How did that music first kind of get its hooks in you? Uh, I always collected 78s, you know, RPM records, you know. I got about 8,000 of them now, you know, 45s. Wow. wow. Yeah, I haven't listened to them all. Uh, the, most of them were, I had about 1,000 that I handpicked. Most of them, though, were picked up by a guy who was going to throw them out from a record company. I just couldn't see all of that history go to a dump. So, yeah. uh, uh, so anyway, so I always dug old music, you know. And, uh, you know, I played jazz. I, uh, you know, I wasn't a jazz player, but I could read music and played in a stage band that played big band jazz, you know. And I could read. And so um, I loved jazz, but I also played in square dance bands. I played folk music. I played rock and roll. I played whatever. And here was a music that I could pl- do everything. I, I could sing a k- simple country song. And and again, so Asleep at the Wheel was formed to play roots American music. We weren't formed to be a Western swing band. It's um, if you look at our discography, like we had big hits in in, in country music in the se- early uh, or mid seventies, and we did rockabilly, we did Cajun music, we did all that stuff because we wanted a band that could do all that, and we always wrote our own stuff hmm. um, to fit it. And and by that, I meant there are two kinds of songs that we, as a band, we would always do. We would, songs that you write and that you love and that the band can play. And then we would have songs written in a form, i.e. Right. Western swing form, boogie-woogie jazz form, jump blues, etc. Well, you talk about kind of the the purpose statement of Asleep at the Wheel. I understand that the band was, was formed in a town called Pawpaw, West Virginia, around 1969 or 70. Tell us a bit about, first, how you ended up in, in Pawpaw, West Virginia, but how the band kind of got started and, and landed that first record deal. Well, we, we, <laughs> Pawpaw's a small town right on the Maryland-West Virginia line on the Potomac River. And the town has seen its better days. It, it's it stays around five hundred people, but we lived on a farm, <laughs> twenty minutes outside of Pawpaw. That, that, right. these, that these friends ours were caretaking for their parents, in a, a, a that a, a log cabin that was built in the late seventeen hundreds, which is still standing, as a matter of fact. Um, wow! And then got kicked out of there because they forgot to tell their parents that we were actually staying there. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we stayed in West Virginia for a year and a half, uh, about a couple, of, a couple of years because we, you know, I was 19 years old and the cities were, it was kind of similar times to right now. The cities were burning. The Vietnam war was happening. There was a great divide between, uh, 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 young folks and, and, uh, old folk, older folks. Right. And, um, we had to get out of the city to get our our chops together and everything. Right. And so that's where we went. Uh, crazy as it may sound, it was really crazy back then. 
um, but it was wonderful. I mean, uh, the idealism of youth being uh, the operative word there. Uh, the story of Asleep at the Wheel is kind of like, you got to be kidding. This really happened? I mean, we were sitting on our farm. We didn't have a band. There were three of us. My brother was visiting. We didn't have a bass player. We didn't. We had never played a show. I think we played in somebody's college dorm room once, maybe. Right. And and um, these two hippie buses in 1970 pull up uh, w- with uh, the hog farm, which are the people who who put on. Uh, you know, they were the merry pranksters and et cetera, you know. Oh, right. Yeah, and they, yeah. And they were doing this thing called the Medicine Ball Caravan. They said, hey, we're having this big concert. Do you want to go down to Washington, D.C. and play? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they stayed around the farm for a couple of days. And we go into D.C. I called up somebody and found a bass player, taught him the f- 10 songs that we were going to do. And um, the... Uh, and we go down, and, and the the show was the headliners were uh, Stone Ground, Hot Tuna, and Alice Cooper. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and Asleep at the Wheel. First show. Yeah, Asleep at the Wheel. Wow. And why we're you Amazing. know we weren't even a band for crying out loud. So <laughs> we went over real well playing old truck driving songs and Johnny Cash, and then the songs that we wrote. And all of a sudden, we had a foothold in Washington D.C. You know. And we would come down from Pawpaw to Washington, D.C. and play at this little clubs up and down M Street. Oh, my God, it was quite a scene. I mean, <laughs> uh, we would play with Grin, which was uh, Nils Lofgren's band. Uh, you wow. know, it's been with Springsteen all this time. We would play, and Amy Lou Harris would come see us. She, she was a, a new mother, had a little baby, so she wasn't really gigging early on. Right. There were all kinds of folks. Uh, Lowell George and all those guys were hang out with the Nighthawks, and and we were the country band, you know. And and then Commander Cody, who I had met when I was in college, said, "Come on out to California." We figured we'd go out for six weeks and stayed for two and a half years. So, <laughs> wow! How we got the record deal when we moved to California in nineteen seventy one. In 1972, Van Morrison heard us and put us on a bunch of shows, came down to our little gig and played at the Long Branch Saloon one night with us. And that's how we got the record deal. He mentioned us in Rolling Stones. He mentioned us and Clover. Clover was our pals. That was Huey Lewis, John McPhee, uh, you know, the great band Clover. Right. And that's how we got our first record deal. All of a sudden, people in L.A. were, oh, my God, Van Morrison likes them. Let's go see them. That's amazing. That's such an important part of what went on. And Van, uh, again, is of the same mind. He he's, he he loves all those different forms: country music, early rock and roll, rhythm and blues, jazz. You know, and he just makes makes them all his uh, his songs. Well, the first "Asleep at the Wheel" album coming right at you, you. That one didn't feature any of your original songs, but then you guys relocated to Texas and released your second album, which was self-titled and included a song that you had a hand in writing called Don't Ask Me Why, I'm Going to Texas. Um, had you already been writing songs? You, you talked before about writing poetry, but had you already been writing songs you know, for the band prior to relocating to Texas, or was that musical environment in Austin kind of inspiring for you to start crafting songs? 
No, 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 no. I, I wrote no. I wrote songs on the first album because the first time I ever met Elvis Costello, uh, he said, "Hey, I'm Ray Benz from Sleep the Wheel." He said, "Oh, you wrote your Down Home is Up Down." <laughs> <laughs> Our crack research team has failed us. Uh, that's we have to all find right, those guys. Uh, that that <laughs> that record's hard to find. Well, I just read in the paper, honey, how you made the Hall of Fame. But uh, the the influence was always there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Texas was our goal. Uh, we had played at the Armadillo World Headquarters in February of 73. And, you know, just fell in love with the town. Um, but in terms of writing, yeah, one of our heroes of Western Swing was Jesse Ashlock. Um, and uh, we had recorded one of his songs on the second album, and got to meet him and and um and became very good friends and uh, that's you know the form was everything that I was talking about you know the form was everything because we were resurrecting and reinterpreting different musical forms and then doing our own writing within those forms you know well a big breakthrough moment came with Asleep at the Wheel's third album, Texas Gold, in 1975, which earned you your first Grammy nominations and gave the band its only top 10 country song, The Letter That Johnny Walker Read, which he wrote with Leroy Preston and Chris Frayne. She said a woman came by with a letter for you. This is what the letter said. Yeah, well, Chris is, uh, is was a wonderful man. He was Commander Cody's brother, hmm. and he was an artist, and was a fa- he did all the Commander Cody covers and uh, uh, album covers. He painted the rope lettering down the sides of our bus. You know, it was hmm. was a great artist, and he just came up to me and Leroy and said, "I got a great idea for a song. It's called the Letter That Johnny Walker Read." <laughs> <laughs> And so me and Leroy sat down and wrote it out on uh, St. Elmo Road and down to South Austin. We had a little house there that the band had. And um, we sent it to Dolly Parton and uh, Porter Wagner, who we did not know, and they did <laughs> not know us. And and we just figured, oh, you send you know uh, uh, this cassette to them in, <laughs> in the mail. Well, they didn't do it. But what's really funny is that we recorded a demo of it and gave it to our CBS Records, the label we were on, and they turned it down. So we got signed to Capitol, <laughs> and it was a yeah our only top ten record of Billboard uh, uh, records. So that's how brilliant the people of the music business are, you know. <laughs> were you guys? I mean, was that kind of? Uh 
an anomaly that you guys would fire off a song to for to pitch to Porter and Dolly, or were you guys kind of actively pitching some of your material to other artists in, in that time? We tried, but we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we had no <laughs> idea. We we were, <laughs> you know, we no, we didn't know. We were not actively participating in the Nashville's. They were pitching us, you know. Boy, I tell you, we got yeah. more more songs. And, and always did because uh, I guess they saw us as a way to get their songs done. But we were pretty adamant. You know, we were doing old stuff. Every album contained at least half old stuff and then uh, half of the right. stuff. Either Leroy was the main writer, but we all wrote uh, occasionally, you know. You know, I, another one of your originals on Texas Gold was Bum Bounce Boogie. And that was a top 40 hit on the country chart. It actually sounds more like a song Louis Jordan or Big Joe Turner would record than yeah. it does a Western swing thing. You know, you, you found a way to really smoothly incorporate multiple influences into those, you know, Sleep at the Wheel records. But I'm, I'm curious to know if you were writing songs in the 70s that didn't fit into the band's vibe and maybe they kind of wound up and, and slipped away, you know, because you weren't really doing any solo stuff at the time. Was there anything you wrote that just said, it was like, ah, this doesn't quite fit the band? Oh, about a hundred, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was the frustration. Is um, is that uh, in the seventies I couldn't get arrested for a solo thing, so uh, uh, nor did I want to. I don't. I really was not. Uh, so yeah, you know, I got pages and pages of songs that never got either finished, done, or paid attention to. But uh, I I, res- I got some of them on my first. Uh, I did, yeah. I, the stuff that I had written in the seventies, I did in the eighties. That that that, that um, on a record that nobody cared for, about, so I just did whatever I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, 1977 was another big year for the band with Rolling Stone naming Asleep at the Wheel Best Country Western Band and the Academy of Country Music recognizing you as Touring Band of the Year. Um, And that was the same year you guys released an album called The Wheel, which featured more of your original songs like the title track and A Dollar Short and A Day Late and Am I High. Am I High. Get a little bit about me, oh my, folks all seem to drift on by. Tell me, friend, am I high? Am I high? Please don't lie. Or have my legs been rubberized? Tell me, true. I want to ask a little about songwriting process here because, you know, your songs with the band are obviously very tightly arranged. Um, And when you're writing for Asleep at the Wheel, do you tend to write like with the entire band at rehearsals and kind of shape the arrangements as you go? Or do you kind of go off, write the songs and then bring them into the group to kind of work out and and figure out the arrangements? Yeah. Yeah. But pretty much we bring, uh, uh, either completed or partially completed by that I mean um, sometimes uh, the form or the uh, you know is complete but the words aren't you know Hmm. sometimes we'll do that Um, but yeah there are times when I'll go hey I got this head Uh, let me think hold on I I need a bridge Uh, hold on Uh, uh, let's try this you know yeah 
Um, or, hey, you got any ideas? I'm stuck on this. Yeah, we'll throw it around sometime. And I remember Bob Seeger told me one, years ago that he would cut the uh, instrumental tracks and then go finish the words, you know, hmm. uh, to, to the tracks. It was great to have it. So I'll do that sometimes uh, because to me, writing music is, is simple. Uh, to me, the, the melodic ideas, I got them all day, all day long. Chord, chord stuff all, all day long. So what I'm really waiting for is is great lyrics. You know, back in the day, you'd have a lyricist and a and a composer. And I was I remember I was talking with what was his name? Oh gosh, the friend of Guy Clark's um, that wrote a lot of Guy with Guy. Um, but uh, Verlin Thompson. Verlin, yeah. <laughs> Me and Verlin were yeah. sitting around backstage with Guy one time, and, and he said, "I said something like, yeah." He said, "Oh." <laughs> Music, yeah, I just word. That's why I've, and he points over to guys. Says that's why he's here because he's got the words. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Uh, yeah, no, it's that's the hardest, and um, you know that's why I keep a stack. Of, you know, my house. I live. I live alone, and I have a. I'm in my studio here, and and upstairs are just piles of papers, right, and notepads with with um, words, choruses. And just keep going back and forth to them. I'm also very project oriented, so you know. I mean, I write all the time, but uh, I finish a lot when I have a project. Right. Yeah. Well, "Sleep at the Wheels" Collision Course album from 1978 included the song "Texas Me and You," that also charted as a single on the Billboard Country Chart. Um, I, I know you wrote that one solo. I'd, I'd like to hear a bit about the process on that song. Oh, that was about a girl, you know. <laughs> <laughs> enough said. I don't, enough I said. don't even. I don't even remember her name. Uh, but, <laughs> but I did pitch that to Waylon. I, I gave it to Waylon again. Stupid me. Hey, Waylon, we we used to work a lot of shows. So here, here's a song. Hand him the cassette. You know, I'm sure. <laughs> I know where that cassette wound up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I um, I that one I was. Uh, I did write it for this girl, but I was very conscious of uh, "Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues" because he uses major seventh chords. You know, hmm. everybody's gonna wait and leave it in hell. It's a folk song, but he's using major seventh chords. Hmm. And I said, "Oh, I could do that. Let's do a country song with uh, with major seventh chords." You can't believe what a beautiful sight it is to see. Hills of home rolling on in front of me. In an hour or so, I'll be holding you in my arms. It's true, and all there'll be this whole wide world is Texas and you. And of course, with that album, which was produced by Joel Dorn, who is a famous jazz and pop producer. And also, it was done on right on the cusp of um, multi-track recording. We did it with two sixteen-track uh, machines linked together to create a thirty-track machine. It was before twenty-four-track was readily available. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was a mess. It wow. was in New York City, and they they <laughs> wanted a hit. And of all the songs, that was the most middle of the road kind of song. And so they 
But timing just wasn't with us. I don't know. Well, after a, a rocky period in the early 80s, uh, Asleep at the Wheel returned in 1985 with another self-titled album, which was followed up two years later by the album 10, which yielded four charting singles, including one of your originals, Boogie Back to Texas. Um, and one of the things we haven't talked about is turnover. You are the one constant in Asleep at the Wheel, and I've seen conflicting information that puts the total number of people who've been in and out of that band at anywhere from 60 to 100 people, which like fully blows away Spinal Tap. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, does does who you're working with in the band at any given time kind of influence your approach to songwriting in terms of knowing, you know, what musicians are going to be playing on the recordings and what strengths a particular lineup might bring to whatever composition you're working on yeah absolutely absolutely that's and and you mentioned boogie back to texas that's a good one because <laughs> uh <laughs> i wrote that on stage one night uh up in kansas with we were playing a show with leo kotke who's just one of my favorite guitar players yeah and and i just uh, started playing it you know that's the beauty of a song it came right in oh i know what i'm gonna do and the band, I just said, J follow me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's been one of our most popular songs um, of the modern time. Been gone so long, I can't wait to get back home. Home to the Lone Star State, another day, I just can't wait. Look out, boys, I'm headed your way. I got a mind that wanders in a 57 Chevrolet. Hold on tight, I got a license to fly. With a pedal to the metal, watch me roll on by. While I move you back to Texas. Boogie 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 back to Texas. We're gonna boogie back to Texas, eight feet to the mile. Uh, yeah, um, that band was, you know, Larry Franklin, Tim. I mean, that was a crack band, boy. Those guys, you know, uh, Larry wound up, you know, one of the top Nashville session guys on fiddle, sure. and um, uh, it was just. Yeah, that's the freedom of having guys who, and not only that, we were working 200 shows a year. We were, you know, one brain. Uh, hmm. That band was very, uh, we also um, would go to the, in a studio, but I'm talking, you know, like a 16-track analog studio in a mobile home. And that's where that <laughs> that's where those things were cut, man. And, and um, so in other words, you, we really were one brain. It was, uh, yeah. that, you know, so yes, the, 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 the composition of the band, but, uh, when you join a sleep at the wheel, you're basically given a chore. You're going to learn everything the way it was done. And then you're going to add your own, uh, personality to that. So, right. so I don't insist on, on, uh, on identical replication, but you got to start there, you know. Well, as we move into the 1990s, Asleep at the Wheels album, Keeping Me Up Nights, featured a single you wrote solo called Dance With Who Brung You. Where did the idea for that song come from? Well, a legendary coach, uh, Daryl Royal, who was the coach of the Texas Longhorns, in 1969, they were playing for the national championship against Arkansas that had the best uh, run defense and they said to him, Coach, uh, are you going to ch change your plans and throw the ball? 
And coach told me, he said, rather than say, you know, in football terms, what I was going to do, I just said, no, we're going to dance with what brung us. (laughs) (laughs) And proceeded to win the game with a pass. But that's irrelevant. It was a... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was you got to dance with who br- what brung us and i said i want to write that song he said go for it and and that's why there's the <laughs> sports the sports metaphor in there you know. you've got to dance with who brung you swing with who swung you don't be a fickle fool if you came here with a gal who has always been your pal don't leave her for the first unattached girl It just ain't cool You've got to dance with who brung you Swing with who swung you Life ain't no 40-yard dash Be in it for the long run In the long run you'll have more fun If you dance with who brung you to the bash Probably not many people who live in Los Angeles where, where we are um, are aware that back in the 1940s, guys like Spade Cooley and Bob Wills were packing out dance halls with 10,000 people on the Venice Ballroom and the Santa Monica Ballroom, which that pier is still there, but the ballroom's long gone. But, you know, there was a time when Western Swing uh, here in L.A. and all up and down the coast was a real phenomenon. Um, and there's... No figure who looms larger in that history than Bob Wills. Um, and Asleep at the Wheel has has recorded three Wills tribute albums to date, starting with 1993's A Tribute to the Music of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, um, which features an opening track, Red Wing, which won you a Grammy for Best Country Instrumental Performance. That arrangement on Red Wing is credited to you and, and Johnny Gimble, who who played fiddle in Bob's band for many years. And then you and Johnny teamed up again on the instrumental Hightower on the 1995 album, The Wheel Keep On Rolling, and earned you guys another Grammy for country instrumental. Um, talk a bit about having the opportunity to create music with Johnny, who was right there making music with Bob Wills and is truly a, a legend in the Western swing world. Yeah, that's that's no that's that's yeah. Johnny Gamble, besides being one of the great fiddle players uh, of all time, you know, I rate him up with the top five of the world. Um, he uh, he was a youngster in the Bob Wills band. By that I mean he was twenty years old. He, anyway, his kids were my age, so right. after he played on our first album we met him we became great friends and they would invite us over and you know feed us and uh, and teach us I mean good god I got lessons you know jam sessions they were and Gimbal would go hey you know this chord oh no oh yeah that's a good one oh hey you know this song no no that's a good one um so all that was great and then Hmm. you know the shame of all that is that the Grammy people eliminated that category uh uh country western instrumental which is a shame i mean folks like chet atkins uh um uh uh, ricky skaggs um allison kraus it's asleep at the wheel etc have won this award and it's really a shame but yeah uh yeah it was uh gimbal was uh what can i say he was a musical father to me and i know his kids and they were all friends his granddaughter played in asleep at the wheel emily gimbal for a number of years huh and uh, is a fantastic piano player and singer. 
So yeah, uh, look, what can I say? This is a guy who could. There's, uh, he's played on more Austin City Limits than anybody but Willie and, a, and Asleep at the Wheel. I mean, there's one with him and Pete Fountain playing Dixieland. He's one of the greatest, uh, and it just fits in like a glove. Uh, and and he wrote songs too. He, uh, uh, you know, he wrote um, uh, and him and his br- brother wrote End of the Line and uh, Have a Nice Day. He wrote some very clever songs and uh, a wonderful man. Uh, I miss him greatly. Hmm. I've uh, I've read that Asleep at the Wheel toured with Bob Dylan in the early 2000s, and of course there's no living songwriter who looms as large or is more mysterious than Bob Dylan. Did you guys have an opportunity to spend much time with him when you guys were out there? I mean, does he does he, does he put his pants on one leg at a time? Is he, <laughs> you know, is he a normal human? Does he do the things that the rest of us do? What can you tell us about Bob? You know, I can't say anything. You <laughs> see <laughs> yeah, the non-disclosure agreement. Oh uh, yeah, no, Bob. No, he's not like us. Absolutely not. No, he's Bo- he's Bob <laughs> Dylan, man. He's he's um, one of the greatest songwriters ever, and one of the more enigmatic human beings. But uh, I got along fine with him. I, uh, I'll tell you one thing about Bob, which everybody knows, uh, but is a great illustration, and I think a great lesson in uh, songwriting. Um, one day he got off the bus and asked me, uh, uh, Hey Ray, you know, you know, a song called fan it. And Frankie half pint Jackson had a song called fan it in 1929. It's a great song. And yes, of course I do. I, I knew it. And I said, yeah, yeah, Bob. Yeah. In fact, we had recorded it once with Willie Nelson. And, uh, I said, Bob, we ought to come down and record uh, fan it with us. And he looked at me and said, no, let's rewrite it first. Because <laughs> <laughs> as you know, you know, I mean, and that's, I think, such a great uh, lesson in songwriting because, you know, um, there are only 12 notes for crying out loud and melodies, I don't know if the permutations are completely used up, but I guarantee you that you can't write a song which doesn't have at least a four bar quote from something. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's, uh, you know, Bob's, you know, um, I mean, uh, you know, go back to God on our side, the song, which is an old Irish ballad, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and to the present day, there are lots of stuff, but he, he was great to work with. You know, Tony has been with him and Tony was my bass player. You know, we started him out when he was 18 and, Tony's been with him all these years on on bass, and Dylan's just uh, you know an incredible uh, creature of of uh, adaptation. You know, I t- I'll tell you though, uh, we, after we finished uh, recording with him, I'm excuse me, touring with him, um, Bob's a chameleon in a lot of ways, and, and I noticed that uh, the next few albums. Um, Tony could, I talked to Tony one time, he said, oh, I had to teach Bob uh, rhythm changes. And r- rhythm changes are the changes to the song, I've Got Rhythm, ba, 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 which is one diminished, two minor, five, one, dim- you know. Right. In jazz, it, it's the most standard progression for jamming from the in the 30s, Lester Young, et cetera, that, that bunch. And um, I said, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, because I guess he'd heard us. And you listen to that next album, and there's like kind of with Larry Campbell and everybody, and there's kind of Western swing sounding kind of stuff on it, right? 
<laughs> and I went, oh, oh, I get it, I got it. And then, of course, learning that, you could see where the Sinatra albums came from. They're all through Bob's filter. Right. You know, so, uh, it, it, but in terms of the way, the chords that we get to use to make songs as guitar player, piano player guy, you know, um, Bob never stopped exploring those uh um, how to do that. That's what's so amazing at 70, whatever, eight, however, however old he is. You know, I remember hearing a tape of him back in the sixties where he d- discovers an A minor chord and says, Oh, look at all you can do with this, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, J- Jerry Jeff one time, Jerry Jeff Walker one time said to me, every time you, you learn a new chord, you uh, should write a new song. You know, I didn't, ha- I didn't have the heart to tell him that I knew too many chords. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, well, in 2003, after more than three decades with Asleep at the Wheel, um, you put out a solo album appropriately titled Beyond Time, um, featuring all songs written by you solo, including Annabelle, which was nominated for a Grammy for Best Male Country Vocal Performance. Annabelle, I wish you well. And I hope somehow you made it through your lonely hell Annabelle, you just can't tell Who you're gonna fall in love with Now can you, Annabelle? And that song is obviously a, a mellow ballad, kind of more in the in the Don Williams tradition. But you cover a lot of stylistic ground on that album that, you know, probably wouldn't fit with the Asleep at the Wheel catalog. Um, and you had mentioned, you know, earlier that you had been writing songs back in the '70s, things that didn't fit in with the band. Um, but you also mentioned being fairly, you know, project driven and project focused. Did you sit down and, and write? that entire album in a compressed amount of time or were these songs that you had kind of been collecting up over the years a little of both a little of both you know there's i mean yeah there's jazz on that record there's you know i think oh yeah yeah beyond time yeah that's got the cut with uh stanley jordan on guitar and just some really great stuff yeah yeah that yeah 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 um so some of that was hanging around and uh, and some of it I wrote for it. Well, there was plenty more Asleep at the Wheel music in the 2000s, uh, including a concept record about the Alamo, and then your first collaborative album with Willie Nelson called Willie and the Wheel. Such a great title. But uh, in 2014, you reemerged with another solo album called A Little Peace, and that features a title track that reminds me a bit of Tom T. Hall's approach to songwriting. Beware of stormy nights Neon lights, dogs that bite. Be good to those you love. Got above, don't push and shove your way around. Every time you do, you lose a little piece, a little piece. Obviously, Western Swing and fellow Texans like Willie Nelson, you know, those those loom large. But who are some of your songwriting heroes that might be kind of a surprise for folks who primarily know you from Sleep at the Wheel? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Tom T. Hall, absolutely. I mean, I bought his records uh, in, in the late 60s when I started the band. I've never met the man, and I just, I've met everybody else in the world, but I have never met Tom T. Hall, <laughs> and I just love his yeah. stuff. Um, and J.J. Kale was a friend of mine. I love J.J. Kale. Hmm. I mean, his songs just, just kill me, man. He was, and um, we were friends. Um, I would see him on the road or in Tulsa or whatnot, and uh, just loved his. Um, I remember he told me a story. He said, because uh, we're both guitar players, and he was also. I have a studio, and um, I'm not the engineer, but I'm a studio nut. But he was an engineer too, and he said, you know, when I was in Tulsa back in the '60s, and I was the best guitar player around. I made two hundred dollars a week, hmm. and I was on the top of the heap. He said, I wrote that first song. I don't know whether it was the Leonard Skinner or 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 whoever. He said, I got that first royalty check, and after that, I just couldn't practice the guitar. I just, if I sat down, <laughs> figured I better write a song. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I loved Kale. Um, uh, the uh, you know songwriters, of course, Willie. I mean, I, I always went back to Willie Nelson. You know, he was just. If I could write songs like Willie, you know, that's that would always be my goals, you know. Um, but Whitey Schaefer, love Whitey Schaefer's stuff, you know, all, all this stuff. Dean Dillon and Hank Cochran did all those George Strait ones. Yeah. Uh, I just loved all the guys from in the country world. Um, but I, honestly, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt, mm. you know, I, I, good, I was good friends with Guy and I met towns when i was 16 and uh recorded a uh, uh, couple of his songs and john hyatt uh you know i was good friends with john and was the first well actually right cooter cut it first but i i was the second person to cut a john hyatt song huh. um we one that didn't come out and then one that did this is the way we make a broken heart we did first um uh, yeah, I love Hyatt stuff. He's just so good. And, yeah, uh, we were. I ha- I have. I helped him put together that band. He called me up and said, "You know any steel players?" I said, "I got a band for you, John," <laughs> and ho- hooked him up with Sonny Landreth, who I'd I'd been producing records. Uh, Darden Smith was a guy I uh, I loved uh, uh, and did records on. Great songwriter, Robert Earl Keane. Yeah, uh, and. Currently, Cat uh, Edmondson is a really dear friend of mine and one of the great uh, contemporary uh, jazz songwriters. Yeah, yeah. Well, in 2017, you teamed up with another fellow Texan, Dale Watson, to release a duet album called Dale and Ray, featuring mostly original collaborations between the two of you, including the Merle Haggard tribute, Feelin' Haggard. Um, and you and Merle were kindred spirits in your love for Bob Wills and, and Western Swing. And Merle, of course, is is one of the great songwriters of all time. I'm curious if, if you got a chance to know Merle very well, and if so, what you as a songwriter took away from your relationship with him. Oh, yeah. We became great friends, and we worked with him a number of times, recording, live, the Last of the Breed tour, and we backed him up. Um. He was the he was incredible. He was not only a great songwriter, uh, he was a great one of the greatest singers of this genre ever. Uh, 
Yeah. And a great student of the music and a great, uh, you know, instrumentalist, guitar, fiddle. You know, he was all around amazing. Uh, and yeah, um, yeah, he would, we would talk about stuff and he, he was, uh, he was a word guy, you know. I, I keep right. seeing guys who are, who just are fascinated by words and how they fit together. I just am privileged to have worked with him and, and known him. We would, uh, he was, uh, the most talented singer I ever knew. Uh, by that, I mean, some of his records, he would do impressions where he'd sing like Marty Robbins, Johnny Cash, and he sounded exactly <laughs> like him. Right. And one day we were uh, recording, uh, uh, can't, I guess the second Bob Wills record. And I said, I wanted him to do St. Louis blues. St. Louis Blues is obviously, you know, W.C. Handy, one of the seminal songs of American music. Right. And Bob Wills did his own version of it, which was totally Bob. And it's, uh, it's, um, he's got Bob Wills, uh, part one and part two. I mean, he, he, they broke it. It's amazing records. Right. And, and I said to Haggard, I said, hey, uh, we do that, uh, you know, the way Bob Wills did. Now, Merle Haggard knew more about Bob Wills than anybody uh, uh, on on earth. <laughs> and he said, well, I, I don't know that. And I was shocked because it was Bob huh. singing. Bob didn't sing a lot. And so he went to the bus. I gave him a recording of it. He went to the bus, listened to it, came back in. And, I mean, just nailed it. And we filmed it, huh. and it's on, our, it's on the film. I mean... Uh, I mean he was just amazing. And Bob sings in falsetto and does a ad lib where he talks about a woman with dyed hair and how I don't like them women with, you know, it's just amazing. <laughs> um, no, Haggard was the real deal. He had it all. His songs are, are you know, if you, if you, and, and I will say this one time at the beginning of the tour, we were rehearsing, he said, I want to do Footlights. And for some reason, I blanked out. I don't didn't remember. I said, "Yeah, I don't remember." And he said, and "He looked at me kind of perturbed." And he said, "That's the best song I ever wrote." <laughs> I went, Oops. I went, okay, oh, uh, it it is, Merle. Absolutely, it is. It, <laughs> and Footlights is is a it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in in 2018, Asleep at the Wheel released New Roots, which included the song Call It a Day Tonight, on which you collaborated with Katie Shore, who had recently joined the band on fiddle. It's too late now for a dancing crowd in the glow of the neon light. So I guess I'll call it a day tonight. It's been too since we met here neath the old oak tree. Um, has your songwriting process, has it changed much over the years, or do you tend to kind of approach the craft today the same way that you were doing it back in the 70s? Well, what's, well, yeah, that's, yeah, but what's different is Katie lives in uh, about uh, an hour out of town, and uh, we had, I had the line and I said, man, I got this line. I guess, uh, I guess I'll call it a day tonight. And she said, hey, you know what? I've got this melody. Been it needs a, that's a good one. Can I have it? Can I? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So she wrote the verse, and then 
And then we're a week later. I, I I'm sitting there. Oh, 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 okay. I got it. I got it. I'm sitting there noodling on the guitar, and I got the bridge, and then the words just fell in. So I texted it to. Well, you know, I recorded it on my iPhone, texted it to her, and said, "Hey, how's this? Oh, I love it." So it's the first time I ever used uh, text and uh, voicemail to uh, write a song. <laughs> right. That's a new process. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's it's. Uh, and and I was talking to Gary Nicholson, uh, you know, great songwriter, and he said, "Yeah, man, I'm collaborating with, uh, you know, he writes with everybody, Ringo and the guy in Fish, uh, and he he says, yeah, I guess this is great. This this pandemic's been great because I don't have to go there. I can just do this, and there's a little, you know, there's a piece of gear like we're doing, you know, where you can <laughs> right. share, you can share uh, audio tracks. It's uh, there's uh, they, the mother of invention, you know. The, we couldn't do it a year ago, and all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute. If you p- cobble together this, this, and this, you can do it, you know. There's a new Austin City Limits collection called 50 Years of a Sleep at the Wheel, uh, which collects highlights from some of the band's 11 appearances on the show over the years. Um, obviously a, an important show and one that... Uh, Willie Nelson and Asleep at the Wheel have kind of become synonymous with. Um, talk a bit about why Austin City Limits was and is such an important show and just what it's like for you to kind of look back at this collection of the various lineups of the band, you know, over the years and how it's kind of changed and evolved. Yeah, it was pretty overwhelming, you know. Uh, both of my kids... Uh, my son Sam works for me. He he uh, he produces our records, plays guitar on a lot of the stuff that I'm too lazy to. I I asked him if I could do this project myself because I've been working with, and they said, "Sure, go ahead." And so the, both my kids put say it was Sam's idea. He selected the stuff, and Aaron uh, edited it. So it was really a lot of fun to have the kids do it and do it so well. Yeah, uh, watching it is. I was just. <laughs> Uh, it's hard to believe that it all happened. I mean, it was, you know, I look at, first of all, I weighed 190 pounds. I weigh 250 now. And hmm. So there was a skinny kid up on stage there. <laughs> right. Um, you never notice how uh, you sang back then. I'm a whole lot better singer now than I was. Um, I'm not as good a guitar player as I was. <laughs> um, but it's really amazing to to see all the incredible talent that went through this uh, band. And, and, and the thing about Austin City Limits, they would let me do whatever I wanted, so I have a collection. I mean, you know, there's the version of me and Willie doing Poncho and Lefty. Oh, my God, you know, I get to sing Merle's part. What a great thing. And then on the other hand, we had, from the Willie and the Wheel stuff, you know, I have a 12-piece band backing up, you know, Willie Nelson and us. And then there's this very rare stuff from 1981. We did a tribute to Django Reinhardt. Oh, wow. Where we do swing music, and it's Freddie Powers and Willie and a bunch of Johnny Gimble and a bunch of. Then there's legendary horn player uh, Arnett Cobb, old black horn player from uh, from the uh, uh, Lionel Hampton band, uh, and <laughs> playing on one of the songs. <laughs> so, I mean, that's yeah. it's everything that I ever wanted to do. All in, in in one hour, and what we didn't use, oh my God, there was, you know, there's there's a whole another two hours of really great material. You know, it was really funny. We went we went back to the original one, 
the first one in 1975, we were the first one. Uh, Willie did a pilot, and then we were the first with the Texas Playboys. And Sam was uh, getting the audio together. He said, there's something wrong. They only sent me a mono copy. I said, well, in 1975, it was mono. They wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> television television <laughs> right. did not broadcast in stereo. Right. Um, and the speakers were, you know, three-inch speakers. And he said, I can't, there's no bass. I said, well, there was no bass because you couldn't reproduce it through those speakers. You know, the bass was there. We just had to EQ it up, you know. Yeah. You mentioned uh, watching back those videos uh, of um, Austin City Limits and saying, oh, you were a skinny kid. You weighed this much and, and now you weighed that much, you know, which doesn't. Uh, it's it's hard for me to conceive of what that means because I've seen you on television and you appear to be about nine feet tall. How tall are yeah, you? Yeah, nine feet one, man. You know? <laughs> 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 no, it's just it's the hat. It's the hat that makes me big. No, I'm six foot. I'm six. <laughs> I'm six foot six, and I only let people who are five six on stage. You know. <laughs> no, I am tall. I'm tall. No, and cowboy boot with high heels and a hat. I do reach. Uh, Higher heights, I guess. Yeah, I think if you're six six and you add the boots and hat, that's uh, that's you're, you're going to get a close seven feet. Yeah, there, and I, I played basketball. <laughs> I was pretty good. I could dunk, but uh, the uh, the uh, it's it's part of who I am, and it's part of my persona, and it's why I'm good on stage. I guess you know, people have always said uh, since I was a kid, you know, I was big and uh, and uh, that uh, your physical presence on stage means a lot you yeah. know and some of it's physical and some of it is uh, je ne sais quoi i don't know <laughs> you know charisma what what is it i don't know but i know people respond to me on stage and and that's been a blessing you know well everything's bigger in texas i guess so there you go oh yeah um well, Ray, thank you so much for uh, spending a little time with us today to, to walk us through your career and, and your songwriting. And uh, it's it's been really fun, and we're excited about the, the Austin City Limits uh, compilation. Can't wait to, uh, to dig into to watching that. And uh, just uh, want to thank you again for, for sharing your time. All right, guys. Thanks, Paul Scott. We'll talk to you all later. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. 